folks, good to see you guys today. Uh, glad to be here. And, you know, it was, it was weird being Joe's youth pastor knowing I was only about, uh, about just two months older than him. <clears throat> yeah, that's not true. Hey, uh, it's amazing how some things in life can just almost uh, propel you back in time. Uh, for me, if, if you take a small little pack of juicy fruit gum, it can, it can walk me back about 40 plus years and put a, like a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes like nothing I can even articulate. Because I know when I, every time I smell that, and I rarely buy it because uh, I, I just like those special moments of surprise. I just won't buy it. Uh, but for me, it takes me back to, uh, to a man that I don't think anybody in this room ever knew. You'd have passed him in a feed store. He'd just been another old farmer. Uh, but I know that every time I got in his truck and I rode with him, that he always carried, you know, packs of juicy fruit, you know, right up on his dash of his old truck. And I know that the smell of juicy fruit gum and also, man, I, you know, you can be offended. That's okay. I'm, I'm 50 some years old. I'm past the point of caring now. Uh, but I love the smell of a pipe as well. I mean, nothing takes me back like, like the smell of a pipe. And for me, those two things take me back to my grandfather in ways I can't even articulate. After my mom had gone through, through a divorce, he was pretty much the closest thing for a really formative period of my life, the closest thing that I really had to a dad. And so to go out on the farm, and, and I'd wake up every morning when I lived in his house, you know, he'd wake up, you know, at the crack of dawn earlier, before the sun ever came up, and I would sit there as a kid and just listen for my grandpa to wake up. And I'd rush out, you know, it's still dark outside, my grandma's making, you know, she's making eggs and bacon for him, and he's going to milk the cows, and she's trying to get me to go back to bed, and he'd say, oh, Mad, just let him come. And I remember getting in that truck long before the sun had come up, driving out, driving up the cows, sitting there, one after another, Holsteins would walk through. And man, just the smell of a dairy farm. And I know for some people in this room, it's like, man, that's a terrible smell. But for me, it takes me back. Like, I don't know for you, if you've got places that if you go back, like, maybe it's not just a place, it can be a smell, it can be just some sort of trigger. I was thinking about just places that are incredibly meaningful. For me, be, I, I drove by myself not too long ago. I had to drop my son off and I went back and I drove alone past my, my grandpa's old farm. And I just sat outside. I didn't go too close. It's kind of a creepy thing to do. He sold the farm a long time ago. But, and he's passed away now. It's even creepier. But, uh, but just looking at that farm, man, it just, it just took me back. Another place, if I go back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's a, there's a river birch in this yard that doesn't, just, just a random house in Tulsa, doesn't mean much to anyone else. And that tree doesn't mean much to maybe even the people living there. But for me, that's the tree I planted on the day that my son came home from the hospital, the day he was born. It reminds me of something, that river birch. Special places in our life hold significance. I, I don't know, man. Have you ever wondered when the last time was you would do something? I've got a 16-year-old daughter, and I wish someone would have told me when I set her down on the ground that that was the last time I'd ever pick her up. That's the last time I'd ever carry her. I mean, a little bit weird today. I mean, I just wouldn't do that, but kind of creepy. But, but I wish someone had said, hey, man, you, you just set her down for the last time. Like, I, I wish I knew that was it. I wish I could have just taken a moment, breathed it in, held it just for a moment, understood what was taking place. I, you know, for my boys, and now my daughter, they're on the golf team. My daughter is. My boys are graduating and out. But I wish I could remember the sound of that last putt dropping in the cup because I'd walk miles watching my boys play golf, always trying to arrange my travel schedules and everything just to be there as a dad to watch them play. And I can still remember Levi's last putt as he played at state and just watching it roll across on that last hole, and I can hear it right now. 
Just like it was yesterday, I can hear that ball fall in. And that sound, I mean, I can hear it a thousand times. It always takes me back to that moment on that day on that green. Yeah, there's special sounds, special things. They take us back. I want to tell you about two guys tonight. And we're going we're, we're to go on a journey with them. And this will be their last. Th- their names, unfortunately, are very similar. And so sometimes it's going to be hard for you as you try to, try to journey with us in this story. Because one guy's name is Elijah and the other guy's name is Elisha. Okay? I don't want to lose you in that. But there are two people going on a walk. And this is their last walk together. This is the last thing that they will ever do together on this planet. I mean, this is it. This is the moment when they have their last stick of juicy fruit gum. It's their last putt, drop it, drop it in the hole. It's the last time Elisha has been the apprentice of Elijah. He's been the protege of Elijah for anywhere between, we don't really know, maybe six to 18 years. We're not sure how long they've walked together. But somewhere between six and 18 years, these two men have done everything together. Elijah, his story... It's a rough one, man. Elijah's one of those guys that had a bit of a tough journey. God called him into ministry. And from the day he gets called into ministry until the day God's going to take him home, it is a tough run. The whole way through, it is never easy for Elijah. If you follow his story and you understand, you can see it all through the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. What ends up happening is God calls him, he crosses the Jordan River, and he moves right into ministry. And from the moment he gets there, he's up against political forces that are just crazy. All the political forces in the country are absolutely nuts. And somehow he's going to be an influencer in the midst of just honestly, just a bankrupt political system. And beyond that, all the religious systems, they're completely nuts. And he's going to be a leader in the midst of religious systems that are completely bankrupt and they're crazy. And everywhere he turns, there's problems, there's droughts, there's famines. And here he is called to be a spiritual leader in an incredibly difficult time. And the truth of the matter is several times Elijah wants to give up. There's moments where there's no food and he's got to somehow trust God to provide. There's a moment where a widow, her son dies and Elijah has got to be there to bring this young boy back to life. There's moments when he goes and and he's going to challenge the political systems that exist. And in the midst of challenging these these prophets of Baal, another God come and there's this, this battle that takes place on Mount Carmel. And all of a sudden Elijah thinks today's the day I'm going to die. But yet again, God shows up and every turn, every turn of Elijah's life, it is hard, man. It is hard all the way, every step, everything he does. He never gets to do anything the easy way until finally at the very end, you find Elijah alone, destitute. Honestly, let's just call it for what he is. He's struggling with mental illness to the point where he's asking God, can I just die now? You know, suicidal thoughts, absolute downright depression. He wants to wither up and die. He goes and he literally sits down underneath the tree and says, God, kill me now. Just kill me now. And God doesn't kill him, so he goes into a cave and he just tries to withdraw. He tries to retreat to get as far away from life as he can. He's in severe depression. He can't go another step. He's completely exhausted. And God says, you're not done yet. Elijah, come out of the cave. And some of you guys know the story. He sends him to meet this guy named Elisha. And when he meets Elisha, he throws his cloak on him and he says, bud, you're up next. I'm out. You're up next, man. I got no more left in me. And for the next six to 18 years, Elijah begins the process of basically discipling Elisha to become the new heir, the new prophet, the person that will succeed him. And right now is their last walk together. So you get your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings chapter 2. 
I'm just going to read their last walk, and we're going to unpack this. This is their goodbye. Elijah and Elisha are about to set part ways. They'll never see each other again on this side of eternity. Here's a story, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, I, I know, man, I wish their names were so close. Hang with me here, man. It's just, it is what it is. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. There's a company of prophets at Bethel, and they came out to Elisha, and they said, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yeah, I know, Elisha said, but don't speak of it. And then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has called me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of prophets at Jericho they went, up, they went up to Elisha and they asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but don't speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I won't leave you. And so the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of prophets, they went and they stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the river Jordan. Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water with it and the water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do before you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha said. Ooh, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, yet if you see me when I'm about to be taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel and Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them apart. And he picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah. And he went back and he stood at the bank of the Jordan. When he took the cloak that had fallen from him, he struck the water with it. Where now is the God of Elijah? He asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right into the left, and he crossed over. This is their goodbye. It's this whole process of Elisha persisting with Elijah to the very end. It's saying, man, I, I'm in this with you until, until you're no longer here. It's their last walk together. It's their last talk together. I think Elisha's refusal to speak of Elijah's departure, it just reflects his sorrow in losing this mentor in his life. I can still remember the day my mom told me. She walked in my room, my eighth grade year. She opens the door. She says, hey, son. And I literally stood, right, I sat right at my bed. I don't know how I knew. I just said, Poppy's dead, isn't he? And she said, how did you know? I was like, I, I don't know how I knew. I just know. It's just one of those moments. This is something that Elisha is never going to forget. 
He's saying goodbye to a friend and he knows all day long on this day what's gonna happen. This is the day. Not only that, but Elijah knows what's coming. All the prophets, everybody knows. It's not a secret that Elijah's leaving today. And I love, I love this journey they go on. If you notice, they go through a lot of cities. And, and we go through these cities in the Bible sometimes. We're not really sure, like, okay, why do they go to Gilgal and Bethel and, you know, Jericho and Jordan? And what, what's the big deal with all that? The cities themselves are kind of important. I want to walk you through this little journey, this walk they go on. And I want to talk about just real quickly each of the towns they stop at. They start off with Gilgal. Gilgal is a place of beginning in the Bible. Gilgal is a place where it starts Gilgal is the place where the children of Israel, they set up camp for the very first time before they cross over. Oh, sorry, just after they cross over. As soon as they get across the Jordan and they enter the land, they set up camp at Gilgal. It's the place where it all starts. Gilgal is a place where, where they sat on the verge of their very first battle. Gilgal is the place of beginning for all of Israel. And I think when Elijah goes, I, I think he remembers his beginning. He remembers the day that he crossed over the Jordan. He remembers going to, to Zarephath. He remembers going to this, when he climbed up Mount Carmel. He remembers all the places where he began, all the places where it started. Where's your beginning? My beginning, I can, I can take back to Mark Twain Elementary School in second grade, meeting a kid named Curtis that invited me to spend the night at his house and invited me to the church for the first time. I, I had no idea what I meant to pray. I didn't know what a church was other than some building we drove by. I'd never been to church in my life. That's a beginning for me. Another beginning for me is every morning when I stand in my, you know, my house, I look out and we live right on the river. I see the river where on the same day I was baptized, my mom were baptized on the very same day. I look and I see the river where, where my son Justin was baptized, my son Levi was, Levi was baptized, and my daughter was baptized, and someday my son Silas will, will be baptized as well. I mean, this is a place of beginning for me. Every day I look out at my place of beginning. Where's your place of beginning? I mean, if you could go back to your spiritual roots, where does it all start for you? I think, I think Elijah's going back to the beginning and he's having the conversation with God about, remember we started this? Because Gilgal's always a place of beginning. Then he goes to Bethel. Bethel is a place of prayer. If you know the, any of the biblical history of Bethel, and if you don't, it's okay. I'll just give you a quick rundown. Bethel is a, is a place where Abraham, who's, man, the, the father of, of, of the Old Testament, he is a patriarch of everything. I mean, a, everything begins with Abraham. Abraham's the guy that when he had struggles, when he had hard times, he went to this town called Bethel. Bethel's a place where he went to fight, a place he went to struggle. If you know the story about a guy named Jacob wrestling, it's at Bethel. And when, it, when, when all of a sudden Elijah walks into Bethel, this is the place of wrestling. This is the place of prayer. And at least, man, God, do you remember how many times we wrestled in prayer together? You remember that kid guy, the, the, the boy died, Lord. And I literally had to, had to lay out in front of you, God, and, and ask you to bring life back into his lungs. Do you remember that when I cried out to you, God? You were there with me on that day. God, do you remember when we climbed up that Mount Carmel? Do you remember when all those prophets were coming and they were going to kill me? And I cried out to you and you showed up. And man, God, you actually killed every one of them. You, you, you fought on my behalf. God, do you remember that day you showed up for me? Do you remember that day? And over and over there in Bethel, as he walks, I wonder if he can actually see the, the stones of remembrance that were set up by Abraham. He walks through the city because Bethel's a place of prayer and it's a place of struggle. And I think Elijah can remember all the struggles he had and all the battles he fought with the father. Man, I've got those places personally. I mean, for me, there's a beach in San Clemente, California where, 
a random guy walked up to me, told me he's a prophet from God, and I spent years making fun of him, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, what in the world just happened? Because what he said came true, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. It freaked me out, but I, it's a Bethel place for me, because I, I cried out to God for five nights, asking for God to answer a prayer, and I'd given up. I can tell you there's... <laughs> There's that house in Tulsa, the place of Bethel for me is when I laid down on my face crying out to God to deliver me and get me out of this church because I don't want to do ministry anymore. I was studying for my LSAT. I was going to go to law school. I wasn't going to do this anymore. And the phone rang and God answered my prayer. Literally in the midst of my praying, the phone rang and God answered my prayer through a phone call in the middle of my prayer. That's a Bethel place for me. I can tell you about the stones of remembrance that I've set up with my own kids in New Mexico. I've set up by myself in Washington. I can tell you when I, on, on Table Rock Lake, I've got the GPS on my phone of the stones of remembrance when I found out that we were gonna be adopting Silas and I went down to the river and I built these stones of remembrance and that's a Bethel place for me. They're everywhere in my life. Places where God and I have wrestled together and honestly, not too far from here, we just visited a few weeks ago. There's a place behind, not too far where I laid flat on my back behind Crystal Bridges after a mountain biking wreck, and I just revisited that spot where I cried out to God in prayer, waiting for a helicopter, waiting for an ambulance to come get me because I was in deep trouble. I mean, you've had those moments where you've met God. Bethel is one of those places, and I think Elijah takes Elisha to Bethel because he says, let's remember the battles. Let's remember we cried out to God. Let's remember when he met us in our distress. Let's never forget Elisha. But he leaves there and he goes on to Jericho. So it's not just the beginning. It's not just wrestling a prayer, but it also is Joshua. Now, he takes him to Jericho. And Jericho is a place of battle. I mean, Jericho won't mean a lot to some of the people watching or in this room right now. But, man, if you live, if you're one of the children of Israel, Jericho is the equivalent of like your Normandy at your D-Day. Jericho is the place where the first fight goes down and we win. Jericho is a place that everybody celebrates. It's the stories that have been told about Jericho. You know, Joshua fought this battle in Jericho. They march around the city. The walls fall. I mean, how God shows up on that day. And I think, I think Elijah goes back to Jericho to remember all the battles we fought, all the times, God, when you showed up, all the times, God, when you delivered. Physical places matter. Physical places are a big deal. And I think what's happening right now is Elijah is in the middle of telling Elisha a story about his journey. But then they go to the Jordan. And the Jordan is always a place of crossing. The Jordan is, is that place where the children of Israel move into this promised land. The Jordan for, for Elijah is when he left a normal life and he crossed in the Jordan and he walks right in from, from just being a normal guy to being a hunted man. When, when he crossed the Jordan the first time, in 2 Kings, or 1 Kings chapter 17, I don't think he has any clue what he's getting into. And now he's standing back at the water, ready to cross again. And this is a scary moment. He knows that as soon as he crosses this river, this is his last day. With every step he's taking, he's getting closer to the end. It's almost over. I wonder if he gets to the stone, if he gets to the edge of the Jordan or the stones of remembrance that they set up on the day that, that all the tribes crossed. They made this big pillar that they wanted everyone to remember what that day was. They set up all of these stones they took from the middle of the river and they set them up. I wonder when he gets there, can he see those stones? Are they crossing in the same place? Like I wonder what's going on. But as Elijah stands there and he's looking at this water and he's staring at it, 
He knows that he's crossing back over and everything's about to change. He's about to finish his race. Matthew chapter 10 verse 39 says, whoever, lo- whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So he takes off this cloak, this, this outer garment that he's got. He rolls it up and he smacks the water and the water separates, which in itself is a crazy miracle. It, it's, what, it's what Moses does with a staff to the Red Sea. Is now what Elijah will do with this in his hand as he strikes his water and it separates. And he walks across like it's no big deal. He reminds me of, of Jesus. You read what's going to happen. He's going to be taken up in this whirlwind, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But here is Elijah leading the way. He reminds me so much of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, when it says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. I mean, I wonder how many of us, if we knew this was our last day on earth, where would we visit? What would we remember? What would be the physical places we would want to go to? What stories would we want to be told? And in this place, Elijah, without any fear, but termination in his eyes, he set his course. He knows where he's going. He has no idea how this is going to go down. He has no idea how he's going to lead this earth. He just knows today's the day. And with absolute determination, he's clicking off city after city after city. He's visiting the prophets in these different cities saying, guys, don't forget the work we started. To the prophets in Bethel, to the prophets in Jericho, don't forget the work we started, boys. And then he moves on until finally his toes are at the edge of the water. He rolls up his own cloak. And he just smacks the water and it separates and he walks right on. He's like Jesus. He's leading the way. He's like Paul when he says in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 or 8, he says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. And now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And then honestly, he's gone. I mean, he's just gone. That's it. I mean, he's it. He's gone. The whirlwind is gone. It's amazing that, that we have the writer who has told us this story about Elijah. But I wonder how many men and women throughout history have lived a life like his of just this abandonment, giving up their own comfort, giving up their their own livelihoods, giving up everything for the sake of, for the sake of God and his name and his, and his glory. I remember one night I was, uh, was alone in Santa, San Diego. I'd gone to this conference and we had just got sick of doing the conference thing. Me and a few friends were hanging out. We said, hey, man, let's go to Coronado Island. I've never been over there. I heard the SEALs train there. And I was like, I, I want to go see this. So we got over there. We didn't see much. It was late at night. And I remember going down by myself and sitting down at this, uh, at this beach area on Coronado Island. And I could look across, and I, I saw all the buildings in San Diego all lit up. And I just looked around, and these waves were coming in. And they were, they were hitting this little beach in front of me, just watching them, just checking them out. I looked, I was the only person there. There was no one around to see this. And these waves are coming in. They're just kind of lapping the sand right at my feet. And I'm the only person in the entire world at that point in time that's actually seeing this wave hit right in front of me. And I recognized like, man, n- nobody, this, it's nighttime. There's nobody else out of but me. There's, this wave is not going to make a postcard. No one's going to surf it. I mean, no one, no, no kids are here to play in it. There's no, no dogs chasing a Frisbee or anything else. There's no, there's just me. I'm the only one who's seen the motion of this wave hit this shore and die, and that's it. 
And then I recognized in that moment that I wish I could live with that kind of abandon. That if no one ever celebrated my story or they ever told my story like they did Elisha's, would I follow the motion that the creators put inside of me? And would I be willing to beat the shore and die if no one ever knew my name, if no one ever knew what I did? And I think Elijah would have done that. If his story had never been told, he still would have beat the shore and died. He would have done exactly what God had told him to do all the way to completion until God called him home and he shows that man. That he'll, he'll follow the motion of the creator. Whatever he's put inside of him, he will finish that task until the last thing he does is hit that sand and it's all over. I want to live like that. I want to live as if every day is actually a gift. I want to live every day remembering where this all started. Remember the struggles that God has brought me through and the victories like Jericho that he's given me and know that any given day, my toes could be at the tip of the Jordan. And I want to be ready, not with fear, but with expectation. And then he's gone. I love what Nicholas Zinzendorf says. He says, I have but one passion. It is he and he alone. The world is a field and the field is a world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can both be, both, most be used in winning souls for Christ. You've got these chariots of whirlwind. Two items we're going to talk about briefly here. You have the chariots of the whirlwind and then this cloak. We're going to hit those two things. Th these chariots are not like puffy little clouds. Some of you guys know that storm that just rolled through. I don't know if it did here. It rolled through Joplin not too long ago, a few hours ago. And man... It, it was just our trees behind our house were just swaying and moving. I mean, this, this, is, this is like tornado-type violence right now. And in fact, the terminology here would be war-type terminology. I mean, this is a violent. It's so violent that it literally separates these two men to where Elisha can't. He can't even get close to Elijah anymore. God uses this, this glory to separate these two men. And he takes them home. And it's not the chariots and horsemen that take him home. It's God's glory that takes him home. And he joins a very, there's only two people in all scripture that have gone out like this. It's him and Enoch. Elisha knows that he's got to watch. So from dirt to earthly glory, he's challenged to keep his eyes on heaven. Even if his, seat, his feet want to slip and his spirit wants to run, he has to endure it. He has to watch. And I think we're called to do something similar like it says in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw everything off that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning against shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary in doing good. And then there's this cloak, the cloak. That, th th this, this small little garment kind of captivates my imagination I don't know how the cloak falls to the ground. Like in my mind, I see Elisha going up and this cloak just kind of drifting through the air. You know, I almost see Elisha trying to track it down as, as, it, as it's coming out in this whirlwind, like trying to, trying to chase it like a kid chasing a kite coming to the ground. And I wonder, does the cloak fall off as if God is somehow saying, you don't need that anymore? Does Elijah throw it off like, hey, bud, you're going to need this? I, I don't know. But I know that Elisha picks it up, and that's important. 
And the weird thing is, he tears his own clothes off. Now, that's kind of creepy. Anybody starts tearing their clothes off in a public space? We know there's 50-some guys over here watching across the creek. He tears his own clothes off. And I don't think he's tearing from sadness. I think he's tearing from, from determination. Because he'll tear off his cloak, and he'll leave it behind. And he'll take this cloak of Elijah, and he'll put it up on his own shoulders. And in that moment, everything changes the old is gone and the new has come because this is a shift in his identity. He's going from the, being the assistant to being the lead. He's now the one who puts the mission literally on his own back. And make no mistake, this is way more than just an exchange of garments. I remember that moment and God did that in my life where he put a garment on my back, a calling on my back, a calling on my shoulders it was 1987 in Bottle of Missouri at a CIY conference. And I remember the sermon. I remember the preacher. I remember the moment. I remember God calling me. And it's almost as if a cloak came down from the, from, from, the, from the air, came on my shoulders. And he said, Jason, this is what I've called you to do. It's what I've told you to do. It's what you've been, you've been created to do. And that moment I picked it up, I've never looked back. Well, shouldn't say that. I've never given up. Elijah put his cloak on Elisha just like Jesus put his cloak on us. He picks it up, but then there's a really interesting thing. You know, if I drop my phone here on the floor and I pick it up, we all understand the concept of picking it up. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't do it justice with what it writes here. Because he doesn't just pick it up. We all know what it's like to drop something and pick it up off the floor, but that's not what happens in this text. The English language doesn't do the words justice here. This is grim determination, not fatalistic defeat, because when he picks it up, the word isn't just like pick it up and hold on to it. It literally means to raise it up. So what Elisha actually does is he doesn't just pick up the cloak and hold it. What he literally does, if you understand the Hebrew word, is he picks it up and he raises it up in front of him. He raises it up for God. And I think in that moment, that posture, it changes everything. It's not like, oh, huh, look what I found. You know, I got great, got an extra cloak now. I'll tear mine. I'll use this one. No, 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 no. There's something incredibly important taking place in this text. See, the first time Elijah, he put a cloak on Elisha's back. This time, Elisha will put it on his own back. The first was a call to follow. This is a call to lead. He accepts now that he is a marked man. It is Elijah's cloak, but it is God's mission. Here's your one decision away from a totally different life. One decision away. And in this one decision that Elisha makes, his one decision will change everything. It's going from this posture to this. It's just, just a couple of feet. It's going from this posture to this. And as you look at me, make this small motion, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in the presence of a holy, mighty, powerful God, moving from this posture to this can change everything. It's the one decision that changes it all. When you can take what you have, you can take what you've been given, you can take what's at your feet, take what's in your hands, and move from this posture to this. To take everything you've got and say, God, I don't know what this is, and I don't know why you've given it to me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift it up in submission to you. When you don't just pick up what's in front of you, but you raise up a whole before holy God. That's what changes everything. And it changes everything for Elisha. He doesn't just pick it up. He raises it up. That, that word for raise up, you see it all through the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 34, 3, when it says, glorify the Lord with thee. Let us exalt his name together. 
Or if you want to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. Same phrase. Same phrase. He takes a simple thing like a cloak and he submits it to a holy, to a holy God and his posture will change everything. Without that posture, he's just doing laundry in the Jordan. Without that posture, he's swimming across. He's not walking across. Without that posture of, of worship, that posture of submission, he's just like all the other prophets on the other side. It's our posture with ordinary things before an extraordinary God that makes all the difference. What does God place at your feet? What does he place at your hands? What's the ordinary that can become extraordinary when you'll move from this posture to this posture before holy God. First Timothy 4, 14, don't neglect what you've got. The power is not in the object, the power is in the posture. It's just a garment, but a garment lifted up before the holy God becomes something powerful. And maybe we don't, some examples might help you understand that because it's one thing for Abraham to pick up a knife it's another thing when he will raise up that knife over his son Isaac and blessing comes when you raise it up. It's one thing for Moses to pick up a stick. Call it a staff, call it a stick. It's one thing to lift it up, but it only becomes powerful when he will raise it up before holy God. And then at that moment, deliverance comes because he's willing to raise it up before God. Joshua had to scratch his head when the, 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 the warrior in him was told, march around the city a bunch of times blowing trumpets. What? What? But the power comes not when you just go through the motion, but you literally raise it up. And the walls fell down and victory comes when you will take something as ordinary as trumpets and raise it before God. Something incredibly ordinary becomes extraordinary when it's submitted to holy God. Every soldier in Israel had picked up a weapon and they heard a, a giant named Goliath taunt them day after day. Every soldier in Israel had picked up a weapon, but only David was willing to raise it up before Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of the armies. And giants fall when you raise it up. And Jesus picks up a cross, allowing his own body to be raised up, and death is defeated when he's raised up. I remember stories of these missionaries who packed their belongings in their coffins when they would go on the mission field. There's one story of a guy named A.W. Milne, and he goes into the South Pacific, and he's working with a bunch of headhunters who have literally killed every missionary who's come before him. He fully goes in, his stuff packed in a coffin, because they're going to kill him. He'll have the coffin already there, and they can ship his body home. That's how this is going to go. But for 35 years, he lived among that tribe. And when he died, they buried him in the middle of their village, and they inscribed this on the tombstone. When he came, there was no light and when he left, there was no darkness. Jesus did not die to keep you safe. He died to make you dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding down the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. And the world has yet to see what God can do with a woman or a man fully devoted to him. Elisha will push until the end. He won't go out like Elijah. Elisha will actually die a very painful death. He'll die of sickness and illness but he will endure to the end. His death may look different, but he never stops the mission. Elijah is gone, but his work continues. Elijah has left, but God's kingdom work remains. You see, when a man or woman of God dies, 
He always has 7,000 others ready to take their place. Yeah, you may exit Elijah, but you enter Elisha. You can exit Moses, and you'll enter Joshua. You can exit Stephen, enter Paul, exit Paul, enter Timothy, exit Jesus, enter the Holy Spirit. Because when one man goes down or one woman goes down, God always has the next ready to rise up. That is the nature of our family. That is the nature of our community. That is the nature of our body. Whose place are you supposed to be taking right now? What Elijah has left and what Elisha's in this room need to cross the river. The reason evil can't stop us is because we've always got the next man or the next woman on deck. But it's got to be somebody in this room. It has to be one of you. It has to be one of you. And you are not exempt because of your age, be it older or younger. God has proven time and time again that age is no marker on use. Who is the next Elisha in this room that God is trying to raise up? At your place of employment, in your home, in your community. If he's put something at your feet, can you raise it up before him? Elijah left, and you know what Elisha will do? He'll go back to Jericho. He'll go back to Bethel. He'll actually go back to Mount Carmel, and he will fight twice as many battles as Elisha ever did, as Elijah ever did. He will lay his life on the line with a cloak on his back to signify his commission, his, his commitment to the mission. There's a story from the Civil War about people who are willing to put that cloak, willing to put it on their back, Horace Porter writes about it. He either gave the speech on June 11th or June 12th of 1884. And this is what he wrote. He says, many here, back in the Civil War, many here will remember the instance of desperate courage, which ought to become historic. They will remember the soldiers who sat down the night before another desperate charge that had been ordered at Cold Harbor. They took pieces of paper and they wrote, they wrote on them their names and then printed the papers and, sorry, and then pinned the papers on the backs of their coats so that their friends might recognize their dead bodies when they found on the fields after battle. That was an instance of desperate, devoted, sublime courage. Men willing to write their names and pin them on their backs because when their faces were found flat out in the mud, that they knew the mission was worth it. They knew the call was worth it. They knew the charge was worth it. What would happen with we as believers? We're willing to pin our names on our back. Willing to pick up the cloak. Willing to pick up the mission. Willing to do whatever we had to do until God called us home. Whether he called us home in chariots or he calls us home in sickness. Two men called very different. Two men live very faithful lives. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live and the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. For once to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life 
for me will find it. We have to continue with a cloak on our shoulders, a name pinned to our back, because this mission isn't over. Fight with everything you've got. Push as hard as you can, with as much faithfulness as you can, until the Lord calls you home and you can hand your cloak to another, your mission to another. Take the ordinary things that God's placed at your feet and lift them up before holy God because your posture means everything. Father, we come before you grateful for the story of Elijah and Elisha, grateful for their friendship, grateful the way it can encourage our hearts. But God, even more so, we leave here more deeply committed to you, deeply committed that we cannot be stopped by COVID, deeply committed we can't be stopped by unrest, whether that be civil, political, spiritual, whatever it is, God, we can't be stopped. The gates of hell can't stand against your church. And so God, in this moment, in this place, let us recommit that no pandemic will slow us down. No economic disruption will slow us down. No election will slow us down. No changes that that happen externally are gonna slow us down. That that we know that we can be hard pressed on every side, we won't be crushed. We can be perplexed, we won't be despair. We can be struck down, we won't be abandoned. We can be persecuted, but we won't be destroyed because we carried in our body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus can be revealed in us. So Lord, let our light and momentary troubles reveal in us an eternal glory that far away is it all. Don't let us fix our eyes and want to see what is unseen, God. Because what's seen is temporary, what's unseen is eternal. And God, may we live with eternity in mind. Help us do this, Jesus. Help us continue. Help us endure. Shouldn't we pray? Amen.